0: Welcome back, everybody, to the Cave of Solitude, your pop culture and comic book podcast coming to you from the mega city metropolis of Toronto. I'm your host, Eric Anthony, and this is episode 246, A Conversation with My Friend Matthew Klein. like a Seinfeld episode, we're just cold open right into the conversation. So, um, what's it like in New York right now? I hear different things from people saying that it's uh, it's dangerous again, people are looking over their shoulder. How are you finding it? Are you feeling okay?
1: Oh, I'm feeling fine. That's I'm good. not really experiencing much of that, but I mean, sometimes it all depends on the neighborhood, right?
0: That's but, true. But, you
1: know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough, I'm down in, uh, in the West Village, down here, it's feeling... Pretty, pretty normal. Businesses are going about their business. People wear masks until they don't wear masks. Um, and yeah, like every, everything's open. Everything is moving right along. And it's, it's kind of one day still blurring into the next a little bit right now, yeah. except for the heat, of course. And yeah. that humidity kicked in. You're just like, ah, get me out of here.
0: Yeah, that New York, that city heat is something, right? Even for us in Toronto. When it gets hot here, it is not a pleasant summer. You're like, okay, we could use a little bit of that cold again because it's painful.
1: Well, I I blame some of it on, like, you know, the the fact that you've just got these giant buildings (laughs) cooking you like you're in an oven.
0: Mm -hmm. You
1: know, it's just like I feel like a roast chicken some days if I'm walking (laughs) out for more than, like, half an hour
0: uh is it a is it a far walk for you to to your job or uh transit well
1: i work from home
0: oh so it's actually beautiful
1: very beautiful.
0: that you know what i should have known that because the last couple months when you were showing your uh, office views from i don't know which island it was this time but i was like that is where i want to work whatever he's doing is what i want to do
1: <laughs> <laughs> no totally yeah no i so i I am incredibly lucky. I don't, some days I, I tell you I don't know whose life I'm living, but I'm not going to tell them. Yeah. Um, but my, my better half, her family, um, has a, a place down in the Virgin Islands in St. John. And so we, we get the fortunate, uh, benefit of that as we get to go down a couple times a year. And so we were able to, to do it this summer for, and because I'm working remotely, I was able to basically like spend a week working down there, and then I took a week off. So I was on all my Zoom meetings. I just made sure there were like palm trees and, the, and a swimming pool in the background, just to, you know, really just make them hate me as much as possible. <laughs> which is exactly what you want to do at a new job, right? That,
0: <laughs> that's it. Everyone was was fixing up their IKEA Billy bookcases for their Zoom meetings, and here you are with palm trees and the ocean vista behind you i'm like this guy what a job and i here i was watching these videos thinking to myself didn't he just leave his job like where did he what happened because you you had left value and i didn't realize that you were on to bigger and better things
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> well i'm excited about it I'm, I'm over now at penguin random house i mm-hmm. worked on their uh, u.s comics market sales team over there and We announced a few months back in March that we are becoming the exclusive uh, distributor for Marvel and Marvel Comics. So I was really excited to to get an opportunity to come and and build something incredibly cool for the industry. So it just felt like a, a very cool time, and it's an amazing company. It's massive, but a lot of really wonderful people and all new systems to learn, and get to be here at the ground floor for something that could have a really positive uh, ramifications in the industry for many years to come.
0: Yeah. If, if you can, because I'm a little bit of a, I'm a little ignorant to all of the interworkings of it. Not that I expect you to break them all down for me, but I do know. And from going to comic shops, a lot of things mm-hmm. have changed in the industry. Diamond is no longer the only one who can distribute all of these comic books and these companies and publishers. So what, does it actually mean for, for DC or Marvel to be now distributed by random, random house, penguin penguin, random house. Sorry about that.
1: Well, so DC was actually the first to kind of uh, branch out and become a, uh, and, and look for a different distributor than just uh diamond. Right. They did that in 2020, uh, kind of in the midst of the, the height of the first search the pandemic. And uh, they, they, they now are with a company called Lunar, uh, which has been handling their shipping, which I've heard a lot of really wonderful things, especially about the packaging and the timing the books arrive. So, and then Marvel announced uh, that they were no longer going to be distributed by Diamond and moved over to Penguin Random House. And we are literally in the midst of that transition um, as I'm here. So, what it essentially means, though, is, uh, it's a little bit of a return in some respects to the days of the, the old distributor. They say the distributor wars, although it's not really a war in this case, but where you had multiple distributors and you would have, um, different distributors for different shops to order from. So shops had a choice, right? They could order, you know, Marvel from, back then it was like Capital and then another was Diamond and then Heroes World got into it. And, you know, every distributor has different terms, different discounts, different shipping terms, um, and you go where you feel like you're getting the best deal and best service, and and that's a little bit of what we've sort of returned to. DC, however, is exclusive with Lunar. You cannot order DC product with any other – DC Single Issues, I should say – with any other distributor. You can order graphic novels and their trade paperbacks with Penguin Random House because Penguin Random House also represents them in the – book market and uh, comic shops have availability there but uh, but for Marvel what it's going to mean is essentially that uh, we will be the, the primary distributor and then uh, Diamond now becomes a wholesaler and can still technically order Marvel Comics through Diamond it's just now you place an order with Diamond and instead of Diamond placing that order with Marvel they place the order with Penguin Random House so it's an extra step of shipping in between and you know a It forces an adjustment to to everyone's kind of workflow and business model, which is is what happens in these things. Um, But, you know, it's one of those things where it's a transitional period, so everybody's sort of learning the the new ways, what works, what doesn't work. You get into a good flow of it, and after a few months, especially of of doing it every week, um, you know, you find that that groove where everybody is, is in a really good place, and that's what we're working towards right now.
0: Yeah, so of course, everyone starts to ask the questions, how does this change the industry other than just the, the schematics of where, how things are distributed to shops? What, short term, how will this affect the comic shops? And then what's the long term benefit? Because you said it's going back to a model where people had the choice of how they wanted to do, where they wanted to do their business. So what do you foresee being the, the benefit of this overall?
1: I think the benefit of it overall is that the, uh, comic shops have another place that will support them. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things that makes me so excited about being at Penguin Random House is that we have a breadth of stock from not just Marvel Comics, but we also represent, you know, uh, DK Publishing, Random House Kids, Delray Books, 10 Speed Press, Rizzoli Books, um... So now comic shops through us have access to product uh, that they may not have before. So if comic shops want to say, get, uh, you know, a ton of prose novels related to Star Wars, we've mm. got them. You know, if they mm. want to build up their kids' sections, they have even more avenues with us now and, and more titles at their fingertips to get it. Um, and we're tremendous about reporting information in terms of, you know, bestseller lists and uh, and customer service with kind of, you know, really tailoring, you know, recommendation list for what a shop is looking for. I always tell my accounts, don't just come to me when something is wrong, which is something that most people tend to just think of. That's what your distributor there is for. There's a billing problem. If there's damages, if there's an overship or a shortage, you call your distributor and, and try and get it resolved for you. But I also tell them, call me with your big ideas, are you gonna do an author event? Are you looking to build up a new section of your store? Are you looking for tips on how to display? We offer a ton of different, you know, sales racks and display racks that people can order with us. So I think the short term the short term benefit is it's a little bit of a shock to the system because it's a it's a new way of doing things and for a little while it's gonna it's gonna feel a bit more like it's more work to learn a new system, right? Mm-hmm. So that's always that's always a rough period, and that's part of the growing pains. The long term, we hope that we're providing an amazing level of service that's going to allow them to grow and to feel supported by you know us as a distribution partner. And it's going to allow a more you know diverse array of type of product in there to help get those customers that may have been going to bookstores and what have you. Beef up their manga section, beef up their kids' book section, beef up their prose novels. You know, find new opportunities that maybe they haven't had access to before, they haven't had the tools given to them to be that successful with in that way and really help evolve. And that's that's really what it all comes down to. And that's one of the things that Penguin Random House prides itself on doing best. And, you know, we've got the track record to prove it, and we're really, really excited. You know, this is a very big and very long-term commitment. To the comic book industry uh, the Penguin Random House is making. So.
0: so overall, it's meant to benefit the retailers and keep the comic shop alive and thriving as a, uh, a connection to fandom.
1: As a connection to the community, as a connection to fandom, as a yeah. connection to their customers. Yeah. It's all about, if, if you're not in it to help them grow, you know, you're doing something wrong. This mm-hmm. is, no one gets into this for a cash grab. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's very hard. Um, it, it takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of man hours. It takes a lot of coordination and logistics to make something like this happen and to build something. It's one of the reasons Diamond's really been the only one to do it for for decades. Um, a lot of other companies took a look at it, but decided not to. And then it's really been, to Penguin Random House's credit and the team over here, that they've been building this channel within our age. Uh, for years and years and years and they 've done their diligence they 've done their research they have put in the money they've put in the time they 've got skin in the game they are going to you know make this successful to benefit comic shops and uh, and the customers
0: mm. yeah it's it's such a an interesting era we live in with the advent of of technology and people doing a lot of uh, comic books digitally now do you think that comic books um i don't necessarily think so or maybe it already is and i just don't realize it but do you think they're going to become more of boutique shops and specialty shops for those who people like who collect vinyl you know everyone listens to spotify or apple music or what have you but you still have your vinyl collectors do you think comic books are kind of going that way or the graphic novel if you
1: will uh it depends you know it's like for, for graphic novels, no, it's, it's not going the way of just collectors. It, it, we're seeing manga is exploding right now. It's the biggest sales in the history of manga, basically, for the last two years. Mm. And it, there's no sign of slowing. The only thing that's going to slowing down is that there are supply shortages all over the world that are making reprints difficult for everyone across the industry. But manga has exploded. Kids' books keep going up and up and up. Mm-hmm. It's one of the, the fastest growing categories out there right now are middle age, um, or middle grade, excuse me, graphic novels. Things like Smile, Randy Telgemeyer's books, uh, Dogman, they just reported sold 903,000 copies, did the latest one. That's all for your comic shops. That's all, you know, product that's there waiting for them. Mm-hmm. So I think comic shops are, are going to continue to thrive in those graphic novel customers are just going to grow and grow and grow and are spending more and more money at their local comic shop right now, which is fantastic. And by everything I'm hearing, single-issue sales are doing pretty damn well, too. You know, So I think that there is some aspect of single issues that will always appeal to kind of a, a collector mentality. Mm-hmm. So you do have those folks that are going to you know, always have that collection similar to what you do with a record collection or what have you. But it's also, you know, indie books are selling better now. Mm-hmm. Uh Marvel's doing, you know, stronger sales than ever. And a lot of them are, you know, the collector mentality because stores are doing what's known as exclusive covers, right? I think Moon Knight had 30 store exclusive covers
0: to right.
1: it, uh, the first issue that just came out last week. So you see stores are, are trying to balance, you know, putting out product that they know is going to sell really well to that sort of collector mentality. Uh, but you're also seeing... A lot of other really great books, you know, finding an audience, which is really cool, and the format—really, the biggest format—that's benefiting are graphic novels, and they have been for a few years, and it's just getting more and more and more so.
0: Yeah, and the diversity within the the collected edition format, and and people who are very dedicated to completing a certain style that they've started. It's it's I can't imagine how the publish the publishers decide which ones to, to keep going with, which ones to switch up on, knowing the type of uh, diverse clientele that they have and, and how they their habits of shopping.
1: It's all, it, you know, it, it all comes back to numbers. You know, you mm-hmm. have to look at track record. You have to look at, at what the, the sales are, you know, for any particular format. And then you, you you make your forecast and you do the best you can to hit your numbers and exceed them. Um but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's one thing. things you just have to look at, all right, what's selling now? What do you think is going to be selling six months from now? What has been selling for the last six months? Mm-hmm. And what has been selling of yours, but what has also been selling that you haven't been doing, that you know there's a market for out there? Mm-hmm. You know? So if you've never put out an all ages or a middle age, a middle grade, because I keep seeing saying middle age, very different, but if you keep seeing like middle grade graphic novels are selling really well, if you've got the capital, and you've got the right creative team for it that can get you in the door, go for it. You know, that's what DC did a few years ago when they announced DC Kids. And they announced, you know, a whole line of, I think it was three or six titles right up front. Here's what's coming out. Here are the creators, and we're going after this audience, and it's been doing really well for them for years now. Marvel recently also, you know, within the last year, started announcing uh, young adult and middle age middle grade graphic novels, uh, just a separate line. So look at what's selling. Look at what's doing really, really well. Um, Webcomics now being collected for the first time are doing really, really well. You're seeing a huge burst of the marketplace for Kickstarter
0: Mm -hmm. uh, back comic books right now. Yes,
1: yes. Kickstarter back comics are the number one selling category on Kickstarter. They had a record over $41 million generated last year, and they're easily going to do more this year. Right. So it's you know, the the audience is there. That's the thing. It's not like digital is is creeping up and destroying any of this. Right. It's a question of, do you have the business model to take advantage of this marketplace and to get involved with it? So as a publisher, look at what's selling, look at what you can spend in it, look at your footprint in there, and then either make the decision to invest and, and get a foothold in that marketplace, um, or partner up with someone that already is in that marketplace, mm-hmm. and that's really the question. So, is it a hardcover? Is it a deluxe hardcover? Is it oversized? Is it a library edition? Is it a just a you know a trade paperback format? Do you do multiple covers for it? Um, do you do some sort of a treatment on there? You mm-hmm. know, it, there's so many different ways to do it, um, and there's an audience truly for just about every format. There, you just got to pick which one is the most advantageous to you, and that is by looking at the marketplace and seeing what is selling. And look at what you have to sell in that marketplace, and say where does it match up the best. We'll go
0: from there. Yeah. Um, with your track record of you know studying sales for both at Valiant mm-hmm. and now doing that here at at Penguin Random House, do you see? Because um, a lot of people sometimes say that the big two or the comic books have kind of been written for when guys our age, when we were kids and we need to get young people back into comics. But based on mm-hmm. what you're seeing sales-wise, it seems like the future of readers of this medium is going to be very, very healthy from the youth that are buying and reading comics now, or graphic novels. I think
1: they will be. You know, I really do. I think they will be. You know, one of our best sellers, honestly, is a, a line of books that we call our little golden books. Mm-hmm. Um, they're $5. They're They're essentially, you know, little sort of graphic novel, picture books, mm-hmm. um, and they're aimed at super young readers, you know, at, at kids almost too young to read, really. And they are flying off the shelves. They we cannot, we cannot track these sales fast enough. And those are all young kids who are learning about, you know, uh, Marvel and DC and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and, you know... Parents who were fans of all these things are passing it on. Yeah, And so we're seeing a ton of sales with that. And so you're starting them out young. You're getting them into it. And then you have those Raina Telgemeier books. You mm-hmm. have um, Check, Please. You have uh, Dogman and and Mare and Bear. I, like, there's so many really wonderful titles that are, are helping kids really get into the medium and I used to see it all the time when I worked at Forbidden Planet in New York. Mm-hmm. Parents come in, they understand that this is a great way to get their kids to read is by giving them graphic novels. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets them interested. It gets them engaged with the artwork. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, it's inviting them in there. And the, the question that every publisher has to ask is, all right, what are we offering that age? you know? And then what do we offer them as they get older? So what do you offer somebody when they're five years old? What do you mm-hmm. offer a reader who's eight years old? Mm-hmm. What do you offer a reader when they're 11 and 12 years old? Right. And then where do you take them next when they're, you know, 14, 15? And then where do you take them when they're 18? Right. So those are sort of some of the age brackets really roughly broken down that you have to look at. And you now you see publishers are thinking about their customer being from five years old all the way to 18. Right. And that's the sort of... Vision you have to have now when you're creating a product line, so that you can get that customer hooked early on and bring mm-hmm. them all the way up right. with you. And that's the goal.
0: Yeah, and it's it's going to be interesting to see the next generation of fans and comic book readers because mm-hmm. they may not have been raised off of superheroes the way we have. They've been raised off of yeah. those Raina Talgo Myers and those Dogmans and like things that are fresh and new to them that there maybe their their tastes are going to lean to the creator owned type of genre and, and even in schools right if you see the uh like the book march the story about john lewis and how wonderful of a of a graphic novel series that is like that could be taught in schools now so people's interaction will no longer be a superhero first perhaps when they get to our
1: age Absolutely. I mean, you know, when when I was in high school, they had just started instituting, you know, Mouse uh, right. by Art Spiegelman on a lot of syllabi, um, and then they were putting Watchmen on there, you right. know, and it's it's just slowly but surely more of those works are are getting into uh, curriculums for middle school and high school, which mm-hmm. is phenomenal. But yes, I think I think there is something to be said, um, you know, for for kids' taste and what they're going to be because slice of life is. Really, what's selling incredibly strongly? Right. Um, the tie-ins, you know, off of the the strength of movies like you know Guardians of the Galaxy and Black Widow and what have you, also have their place very well for that age range. So it's it's one of the things. Fantasy is huge right now. Kids are buying fantasy graphic novels in droves. It's amazing. <laughs> it's a very hot genre. And the beauty of it too is that you know kids taste change. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll get exposed to, to one thing when they're young, and then they'll, they'll be ready for something new as they, they get a little older. And the other thing that's going to be cool is watching, you know, different creators who are working right now, who are starting out, and they're working on these kids' books. And then they're going to go and work on things like Batman and what have you, like Marco Tamaki is a perfect example, who's, you know, now the ongoing writer for Detective Comics. Marco Tamaki was writing really, Beautiful personal stories, um, you know, OGNs, and, and I think she even kickstarted a couple of them um, a few years back, and now she's kind of grown into also working on uh, Batman and, this, and DC characters. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're seeing uh, different creators who start with that sort of indie or slice of life, personal memoir. Uh, storytelling are evolving into the writers mm-hmm. of uh, superhero characters, and I think that's another way that you'll get that audience to to make the leap from one to the others. They will follow the writer, or they'll follow an artist as well.
0: Right? Yeah, that's that's exciting, and it's going to be fun to see that transition in the next couple of years when the people who yeah. grew up. Yeah, it's going to be nice because it's it'll be so different. You're really going to see the diversity of story t- shine through, where everyone will have. You'll have graphic novel sections of just, you know, true crime. It won't be superhero. It'll be just like Ed Brubaker's section of, of books. It'll be really fun. Can't wait. Yeah. Um,
1: uh, can't what, wait at all. What, uh, and, and that's what it should be, you know. Yeah. The, the industry should continue to evolve and grow, you know. Tastes change. They evolve and they grow. What people were reading in the 40s, they did not want to read as much of in the 60s. What they were reading in the 60s is not what they were reading in the 80s as much. Everything evolves. Right. We are concerned to evolve. Yeah. Uh, we just do it in, with, with a whole different knowledge because now we're exposed to storytelling from all over the world, from all different um, art forms are coming in and influencing it. And even structurally, yeah. you, know, you look at webtoons And they do that vertical scroll versus an Instagram comic where you're doing a carousel view. They're all different ways of telling a story and experiencing a story. Um, And that's really neat, and you didn't have those options before. And that's not scary. That's not going to make one style go out of vogue, necessarily. It's not going to put one on the shelf forever. But it does mean that everything will get a chance to take from these new facets of storytelling and and grow from there and what's that going to look like in five years are we going to have you know vr uh, mm. comic books We're literally <laughs> in the panels Who knows? right oh man uh, but it's a really cool it's a really cool opportunity out there right um and that's what i find that very exciting and very stimulating and, and very encouraging
0: so having worked for, at a comic book shop at uh, you know One of our favorite people is to go into the comic book shop and be able to ask, what should I read? And then you end up at Valiant, director of sales, and now a little bit bigger umbrella dealing with comic book shops on a whole. What's something from your comic book days as a retailer that you take with you that you use in these different environments now, remembering that time?
1: It's it's about understanding. For, for me, I think what's what's invaluable. What I take with me everywhere is is uh, a bit of an understanding of what goes into the day to day grind for a comic shop owner. You um. know, like I I am I'm sympathetic and I understand when they're saying you know if if you've only got one or two people on the floor at a time, having an additional distributor at first can feel like a lot more work is being asked of you, right? You're trying to do things as efficiently as humanly possible, and there are some things that can get lost in translation um, between a comic shop a retailer and a publisher and a distributor in terms of what the needs of a store are on a day-to-day level, on an hour-by-hour level. And so, I really, I really draw upon you know those experiences of okay, I've I've worked the wall Tuesday nights to prepare for for Wednesday on sale, you know. I've received books. I have gone through different distributor systems for ordering. You know, I've worked with different customers. I've I've seen taste evolve. I've seen how to display in stores that's effective and ineffective, um, how to tie in with the latest movie or TV show or what have you. So I bring that experience with me, and I can bring that, one, to be an advocate for the stores, and two, to also, you know, help uh, the outreach there for of publishers and the uh, distributors in terms of how to best uh, cross the bridge, if you were, in terms of fulfilling the needs and wants of the comic book shops. Mm-hmm. So That's what I try to do. Um, and that's why I still go into shops every week, you know, and, and see what's going on and just listen to people have conversations and see how people are displaying their, their books and just you know, never want to lose that sort of on-the-ground knowledge and feel uh, that you can bring with you.
0: Yeah, you're you're definitely I think the right person for the job because you've held every seat that you could in in the process of doing in, in this business, and you're not somebody who just took a job because you were successful at selling books at anywhere it was you know the industry and you still go to the stores. Like, you always post your recommendations and go to Forbidden Planet or whatever store you visit to to big them up and, you know, give attention and and, um, consideration to their work.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the goal. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, you're the right guy. You know, that's the goal. And it's a great goal to work towards, you know, especially, so... I, you can never bat a thousand. You'll never get it right all the time. You'll never nice. satisfy everyone all the time. But, you know, the, my, my biggest, I think my biggest, um, asset is really just that every shop I talk to, I hope they, they know that I'm listening and that I'm trying, you know, and that I am, I am looking out to, to get the answers they need when they need it. How, and to, if there is change that needs to be affected, then I, I try and make sure I advocate for them. And I hope they, they uh, have faith that I'm always
0: doing that for them. Yeah, I'm sure they do. You're you're the right guy for the job. Um, another area of expertise for you is good old wrestling, and uh, I always gotta ah, throw in a little. I always gotta throw in a little squared circle talk because uh, that that's really? always a lot of fun. One of my favorite things about following um, your social media is is because of all of the wrestling videos you post the classic matches that i'm like man i don't remember the last time i seen this or i don't know if i've ever seen this except in pictures but uh yeah it's a lot of fun watching these you've got some royal rumble clips lately you're a big fan of the rumble so
1: so what i'm doing is i'm going through peacock right because i switched over when wwe network you know moved to peacock basically for the u.s Okay. And I, I am now going through every single pay-per-view on <laughs> Peacock in chronological order. So I started Starcade 1983, and I've just been working my way all the way up. And so I've been sort of tracking this journey by posting, you know, one to three clips of each show that I'm watching on social media. Oh, uh, man. So that's all the stuff that you're seeing. So, like, I... And I'm behind, because I do, do like, one post a day or every other day. So I'm actually, like, up to SummerSlam 1992 right now.
0: Oh, that's Um, a favorite of mine. That one's a favorite.
1: It's great. It's, uh, you know, I mean, opening match with with Money, Inc. and LFD is really, Uh, really solid. The Shawn uh, Michaels-Rick Martel match, where they weren't allowed to hit each other in the face. That's right. Pure, pure nonsense, but in a very entertaining way. They were great workers. And yeah. then I just watched, you know, Warrior versus uh, Savage is an underrated gem of a match, despite the finish. Yeah. Um, and then I'm about to watch Bret Hart versus British Bulldog, which is one of the all time classics in front of eighty thousand people in Wembley Stadium. It doesn't get much better than that for nineteen ninety two.
0: No, absolutely not. And it was uh, that was the first pay per view I remember uh, ordering. My dad ordered it for me right. and. We watched it a day later in Canada, like they had the event, I think, on the Saturday, and so the results yeah. the results were in the newspaper here, and everyone was predicting the matches, and I was so upset because I wanted uh, the Hitman to win, and it scrambled right at the finish, so we were all like, no. "What happened? What happened and And as it came back and onto the tube, you just hear and new no, Intercom." I was like, "No, I didn't even see how he did it. Oh my
1: gosh
0: yeah that was a big oh, God, one. You know, like,
1: did you have to wait for the, the VHS yeah the, the ending of
0: the match yeah oh no so I, now I watch it almost whenever I can it's one of my go to if I don't know which wa- match to watch I always can watch that one would you okay. w- which one do you put above uh, Wrestlemania 3 Savage and Dragon or SummerSlam 92 that's
1: a heck of a choice you just gave me uh, Those I are picture-perfect,
0: picture-perfect matches.
1: You know, I think, I think I'm think i actually going to... I'm going to go with Savage Steamboat. Here's why. It's mm-hmm. uh, not a knock on, on Brett and Davey at all. Savage Steamboat had... In, this is nitpicking, but there are a couple moments with Bulldog versus Brett that you can see Brett is trying to to save a spot or two. Yep. That it, it gets a little rough. Like, he's... he's he plaunches over the top ropes, and Davey's not there to catch him, so he literally, like, grabs him by the head, and they call it a reverse bulldog. Yeah. Um, when he gets crouched on the turnbuckles, you can see that that was a bit of a botch. Mm-hmm. So there are little moments like that. There are no moments like that in Savage Nebo. I mean, that is so smooth throughout. Um... The only other thing I would say is that Savage Steamboat, maybe there wouldn't be a Bret Bulldog without Savage Steamboat at WrestleMania three.
0: That that's, so the that's what I was thinking. Of
1: it sort of, you know, kind of tips it in that favor for me too.
0: Yeah, that that's what I was thinking as well. Is you don't get many. Of the matches that when they say that's even better than this one, you it's like, yeah, because of that one. It's you know, it's kind of like the ladder match of WrestleMania 10, it's the one and, and the SummerSlam afterwards. But they're
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, I don't know which one is better than the other, but without WrestleMania 10, you don't get ladder matches like that.
1: No, you don't, no, you don't get ladder matches like you get today without WrestleMania 10. It changed the business, right? Um, you know, and and before that, there was that one in, in, I think it was April or May of 92 with Brett and Sean. Yeah. People just hadn't seen that before. Right. And unfortunately, that one just didn't get as big of a state, But a couple of years later, when they did WrestleMania 10, they knew they could do it because of that Brett and Sean match. Right. So it's, you know, it's really fun to sort of track that history, yes. right, all the way, all the way through and see like, okay, where does that, where does it start from and then how does it evolve, right? Which is very cool.
0: Do you have a favorite pay per view? Oh
1: man, a favorite pay per view of all time. N-
0: no, I mean event. Like then, let's stick with the the oh, original man. five, King of the Ring included. Oh
1: man, it's hard. It, I I feel like I feel like I gotta go with Rumble. Yeah. Like, Royal Rumble as an event is just like you can always count on the Royal Rumble. There have been very few years <laughs> where the Royal Rumble was absolutely like unwatchable. There were a couple in, in the last decade. Don't get me wrong, but but even a bad Royal Rumble can still be pretty good. It's sort of like pizza. Even bad pizza, it's still pizza. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's sort of how I deal with with the Royal Rumble. Even a bad Rumble, but it's still the Rumble. <laughs> um, and I think the the match, the structure of, of the match is so brilliant and will hold up for every generation ever. Right. Um, and then you always have like those those classic title matches thrown in there and some other attraction matches to around it. Right. Like I remember I was at the 08 Rumble when Cena made that surprise return at the Garden, and I mean it's the biggest best pop I've ever. Experience when I was at WrestleMania 15 when Austin beat Rock for the title. Cena's return was a bigger, crazier pop than that. So, like, there's just something about the Rumble, the surprises that are in there. Like, it's always memorable. You can always count on it to deliver, and it, it kicks off the year, right? So, I think Rumble is, is fine. What about for you?
0: Ah, uh, man. It. I think I lean a little bit towards SummerSlams for some reason. I just, there's ones that I remember fondly. But it's hard to argue a WrestleMania. You know, we all have WrestleMania moments that you can think, "I want." I remember that particular Mania, or this. Though that's always a pretty good event. But SummerSlams, you get a good SummerSlam. They're almost as good as some Manias. Sure. Yeah. So it's, I know. I
1: think. I think sometimes SummerSlam is the better show. Yeah. Like uh, you look at you look at two thousand two. I would argue that's. The Maybe the best SummerSlam of all time was better than WrestleMania that year.
0: What what was in that one?
1: uh, Which one, SummerSlam or Mania?
0: Uh, uh, SummerSlam.
1: So, SummerSlam, that was opened by Kurt Angle versus Rey Mysterio. Oh, man. Which is maybe the best opening match in the history of a pay per view. You had uh, Brock versus Rock for the title as the main event. You Mm -hmm. had Shawn Michaels versus Triple H in the unsanctioned match. It was Shawn Michaels' comeback after four years on the shelf.
0: Oh, yeah, that Um, was good. That was good.
1: You had uh, Rob Van Dam versus Chris Benoit for the Intercontinental title, which, you know, everything with Benoit and how it ended aside, is a phenomenally worked match. You had Edge versus Eddie Guerrero, which was fantastic. Like, it was just stacked. I mean, every match on that card was... Unbelievable and delivered, and it just built and built and built to the to you know the crowning of Brock Lesnar's first uh, WWE title win. Amazing. So I and yeah, look, WrestleMania eighteen had one amazing match with Rock versus Hogan. I was at and that as iconic as that is, but for an entire event, no SummerSlam two thousand two was easily superior
0: to it. Yeah, that was at my height of watching like that. Those were the last years of me really loving WWE. It's been a while. Like I've always watched it peripherally, but um, I was uh-huh. at I was at that Mania, and you're right. That was the match to watch. Oh, absolutely. Just the card that you described through the SummerSlam, easily a better show because that that finishing match at uh, WrestleMania 18 with Hunter and Jericho. It, it, I don't know. It just didn't have it I for me. Bad
1: bad for them now when you go back and you watch and you go man that crowd is so exhausted from the Brock
0: Hogan.
1: yeah (laughs) they were in the Triple H has found himself in a really unenviable task of having to follow you know the biggest most incredibly draining matches in history with like that's one of them. WrestleMania 25 is another one where he just like he and Orton just got in a shit spot of following <laughs> Taker Michaels one right. So it's just like you almost feel bad for them, and they're like, "Wow, we kind of got the we got the booking wrong on the card here in terms of the card order." Yeah, um, but so it goes.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's a great SummerSlam pick. Do you have a fa- a favorite Rumble? Oh,
1: you know I. Favorite Rumble, favorite Rumble match, or favorite Rumble event? Because sometimes you got to separate them, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay, a favorite Royal Rumble match finish. Like, is there one that just that was brilliant? How they did that, or even just the whole match itself?
1: I think, as far as a Rumble match goes, a Royal Rumble match, it's hard to beat ninety two. Yeah, like, yeah, Flair, Flair going the distance basically mm-hmm. is just one of the great performances ever in the history of the event and bobby heenan on commentary makes it absolutely mortal like there there's never been a job calling a royal rumble than bobby heenan in 92 and i don't think anyone will make an argument there has been um i'm gonna tell you what though Mm -hmm. for an overall royal rumble event Mm uh 2018 and 2020 are absolutely up there like 2020 is a brilliant Royal Rumble match for the men's. It is with Brock Lesnar out at number one, and he basically takes out half the match. It's just the story of Brock Lesnar, and then the rest of it is the ascension of Drew McIntyre plus the return of Edge. Like, it's, it's an incredibly well-booked match, and I, I would argue that's maybe the second-best Rumble match bell-to-bell of all time.
0: Very cool. Now I want to watch it. I uh, I have the WWE Network app. I don't have a subscription to it. So every month I get to kind of nitpick through the pay-per-views of that season uh-huh. and get to watch some old stuff. So that's always really, really exciting. Is there, um, if you had to, uh, your most underrated wrestler in your book, who would it be?
1: Today? Currently?
0: Okay let's do currently, and let's do all time
1: um i I would argue the currently most underrated wrestler mm, across all companies um, hmm. It's funny, it used to be the Rascals who are now MSK. Hmm. Um, because I, I always thought they were just unbelievable potential, but now they're getting a run with the straps. So it's, it's hard to call them underdogs anymore. Um, I think that from an underrated standpoint, um, Isaiah serves Swerve Scott and Hit Row in, in NXT. I think they are just starting to put all the pieces together and I think they are absolutely a main event act within two, three years. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll be running NXT. If they get the opportunity, they will run SmackDown if they want to um, over the next five years. I think that is easily one of, like, they are they are finally on the rise, but I always thought Isaiah Swerve Scott was being, you know, just hadn't found the right fit yet uh, in NXT, and now he, he really has. So I consider them, like, absolutely underrated, but they're finally starting to turn a corner um, and they're going to shock everybody.
0: Hmm. And if uh, you... All-time? Oh, you're all-time, yeah. Do you have a guy that should have been the man?
1: Ah, man. Um, All-time guys that should have been the man who are underrated. I think think that you can make an argument I think to some extent uh you could it's hard to call him underrated like Mr. Perfect was Mm. was brilliant but he never got that world title run yeah you know I would be fascinated to see what would have done as a heel champ yeah um I don't know if he would have drawn. It, it was a babyface territory back then, especially. But he was—he was pretty. Mad. You know, uh, maybe maybe Rick Rude mm. never quite never quite ascended to that upper echelon where he could have really thrived. Right. Um, That's
0: a good pick too. So I think maybe Minnesota he was—he was one of those
1: guys that always seemed to knock on the door, and he could do it all. He could talk. He yeah. could wrestle. He could wrestle anybody. He could have a great match with anybody at any given time. Um, he, he had the, the look of a champion. He carried himself like a champion. You know, I always wonder, I, it always feels like he just had sort of was wrong place, wrong time yeah. for kind of his ascension of the card, as it were.
0: Him and Macho Man in a title feud would have been really amazing to watch.
1: Would have been super cool. It would have been really super cool. Um, Him and Macho in, like, 92 would have been off the charts. Yeah. Um, They they would have absolutely torn the house down. I think you could have gotten more mileage out of Rick Roode and Ultimate Warrior in 91. Yeah. I I think that feud, you know, had Roode not... uh, Sorry, in 1990 into 91, I think had Roode not gotten fed up and just left the company at that point... You know, I think there could have been longer term plans for him going into like Survivor series and, and what have you, maybe even during the WrestleMania season. He yeah. could have been that guy if he'd stuck around and, and worked with it more. Yeah. But I don't know what happened. But uh, but I think he was he was finally at that point in like nineteen ninety where he was just about to ascend to that next level. Yeah. And then he made the determination to leave. And he did he did great in W C. W, don't get me wrong but he was sort of overlooked for for the monster heel of Vader in in WCW. And he was like the international champion in 93, which the title just wasn't, you know, it it was kind of a a secondary title at that point. So he never really got like a legit I'm the world champion run to, to run with the ball really anywhere.
0: That's a good pick. Rick Rude, yeah. And Mr. Perfect, both of them. Well, and you're right that that there wasn't anything they couldn't do like they could no. do anything in the ring with anyone and talk on the mic there were some guys who they were like a Owen Hart is almost up there for me but he's not sure. he's not quite as slick on the mic well, he was great as when what he did with he wonderful heel like he sold it it's just that the Rick Rude on the mic—you just really believe this guy was exactly who he was, and if he would have been, you know, saying something to Miss Elizabeth, oh, it would have turned into a shoot. It would have been amazing.
1: I, I, am with you. I think Owen Hart will go down as as one of the most beloved and probably one of the smoothest workers of all time, yeah. without question. Yeah. Um. But as a heel, he was only really good at playing sort of that. It, it's tough to be a heel champion and be a quote-unquote whiner. You know, yeah. like, there's a there's a chicken-shit heel, you know, that there is that archetype, but there is a difference between being, you know, a Ric Flair and, or even Miz sort of chicken-shit heel versus being, you know, just sort of that, that whiny, almost immature, sort of childlike yeah. kind of character, and that character doesn't necessarily... I can understand why you don't make that character the face of your company, you know, to make them the standard bearer. So I, I, I mean, he played it so well and he was a brilliant challenger against the baby face champion. Yeah. Um, a great mid card title holder for sure. And he was amazing in that role with Ellen, but he would have needed to, to do, to show another side or two to really solidify being that in that world title picture, you know, beyond that. Yeah.
0: I think you got that. You got that right. That's a, that's a good way to, differentiate the value or not the value but the type of heel that he was in comparison to even when uh, his brother became a heel in in 97 it's that chicken shit heel like you believe he's champion but he's someone we all want to see get the crap beat out of
1: well and Brett too he wasn't he wasn't even just a chicken shit but he was just a he was just an asshole yeah. you know <laughs> he, was, he was just such like a he had this like arrogant Pride, yeah, you know of of everything, and he was he was legitimately the best wrestler out there, but he would still sort of like he would tell you he was too, yeah. right, yeah. you know, and it's and it was he carried <laughs> himself in a different way than Owen did, and that way he was a little bit more he still felt a little bit more mature as a as a character than than owen did at that point
0: that's true that's a good that's a good way to put it, more mature. Matt, I love having these conversations with you. I can go on for hours, but uh, I'm going to let you have some supper and uh, enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you so much for coming on the show again. I hope to have you on soon, and we'll talk comics and more wrestling.
1: Uh, looking forward. to If anybody listening wants to, to follow my journey along, go to uh, at MatthewKline316 on Twitter um, or uh, at MacTheKnife1116 Mac on Instagram. I'm posting these clips of these journeys, you know, almost every day every other day tons of comic book news on there as well and come say hi
0: awesome thank you so much man i appreciate it thank you everybody for listening be sure to rate and review the show be safe everyone